Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Oxfam, Greenpeace, and the World Wildlife Fund lead a walkout at the UN's deadlock climate negotiations in Warsaw. This action is a clear statement that this particular COP is a complete betrayal to the sense of urgency that is needed. So our message to our political leaders, understand that nature does not negotiate and we have to change political world. But many world leaders don't seem to be listening. Also, cutting energy use and emissions one smart light system at a time. The utility provider, once they installed our fixtures, didn't quite believe their meter. They actually sent someone out to go check the meter and make sure it was actually functioning. The amount of power that we were starting to save them and then they started to start monitoring to make sure that they weren't pulling a fast one over them. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Diplomats and advocates spent the last two weeks in Warsaw, Poland, at the UN's annual climate meeting, or COP. They made virtually no progress. Despite a hunger strike in sympathy with Filipino victims of Typhoon Haiyan, and the deadlock ultimately sparked an unprecedented walkout by NGOs. Kumi Naidu leads Greenpeace International. This action is a clear statement that this particular COP is a complete betrayal to the sense of urgency that is needed. Our political leaders have the temerity to tolerate the fact that we are called hooligans, when in fact the real hooligans are the CEOs and the big bosses of oil, coal and gas companies that have completely captured our governments and have completely captured this negotiating process. It is an insult to us that this COP is largely sponsored by the coal industry. We are not disrespecting the United Nations or the United Nations Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change. It is the individual positions that powerful governments bring here that is holding the process. That is why our commitment here is not simply saying we're walking out. We are saying we are walking out and we are committing ourselves to mobilize the largest number of people in every single country in the world to say to every parent, your child and your grandchildren's future is at stake. You need to stand up now and take action so that when we get to the next COP in Lima, Peru next year, we have a fighting chance to lay the foundations for a fair, ambitious and legally binding treaty when we get to Paris. Something, by the way, that we were supposed to have achieved in Copenhagen. So our message to our political leaders, understand that nature does not negotiate. You cannot change the science and we have to change political world. Joining us now from Warsaw to put all this in context is a veteran of all 19 of the UN's climate cops, Jennifer Morgan, director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute. Well, I think you're seeing a deep, deep frustration with the response of governments and corporations to the crisis that's occurring on climate change right now and the feeling like they needed to shout out to the world that it's just not enough what's happening inside these halls or back in capitals to address the problem. What are these groups like uh, Oxfam and World Wildlife Fund say they're going to do to get the political will needed to have their governments push for success at meetings like this? 
Well, I think what I've heard those groups say is that they're going to go back to capitals. They're going to join forces with other movements, uh, other groups, in order to put pressure both on the fossil fuel industry, which they hold rightfully responsible for a lot of the emissions, but also directly on governments. Japan and Australia have been the big stories here the last two weeks. So it's really heading back home into the politics to try and change them. What did Japan and Australia do at these talks? Unfortunately, uh, separately, but Australia's new government has announced that they are not going to increase their pledge from a 5% target, what they have right now, up to a 25% target, which they, the previous government was considering. Japan has announced that it's going to weaken its target to tackle climate change quite significantly in a way that it would allow its emissions to grow. And that both Australia and Japan has created tremendous anger in civil society and also, of course, in a number of countries around the world, China included, African countries included, about this walk back of those two countries. How angry are these nations? Uh, What talk is there about taking more stringent action? Well, I think they're very angry, but at the same time, I would say the most constructive delegations here in the negotiations about how to move forward in getting a new agreement have been the African nations. For example, South Africa has brought forward a very interesting proposal around the issue of equity, which gets to the heart of how do you know whether an agreement is fair or not? How much does each country have to do, which is at the very core of these negotiations? Africa's come in with a proposal that brings in science, tries to move the debate forward and really tackling, okay, who's responsible for the past, but also who's responsible and likely to be responsible for the future. Now, what happened with the developing nations at the loss and damage talks? On the issue of loss and damage, it's really about what happens when a country can't prepare for an extreme weather event or something like sea level rise that's caused by climate change, and there's permanent damage. People lose their homes, uh, they lose their whole livelihoods. How do those people get taken care of? And developing countries feel that because developed countries are most responsible for the problem, that they should take care of those people who have suffered such damage. Developed countries, on the other hand, while they sympathize, are quite nervous. Uh, What exactly are the developed countries so nervous about? Well, I think when um, the words such as, you know, can you be held liable for these types of events, they're worried about having to pay large sums to support the revitalization or rebuilding of cities around the world and being held responsible for that. And what about places which might disappear under rising seas? Well, certainly places, uh, small islands that could disappear are very much at the forefront of this debate with their worries. And they have a case. What happens when their island disappears? Where do they go? Who takes care of them? It's a huge moral issue of our time, I think. How was Poland as the leader of these talks? Since it was the host country, it chaired them. Poland was an incredibly controversial president at this COP uh, due to their role within the European Union of holding back action. It's very well known that they've blocked uh, Europe from moving forward, for example, to a higher target 
They hosted a coal conference here in the middle of a climate meeting when it's quite clear that coal is one of the biggest polluters and causes of climate change. So it hasn't been, uh, let's say, the most progressive uh, president that uh, has hosted a COP. What should American citizens know about how the U.S. government conducted itself at these talks? I think they should know that the U.S. government is starting to get more credibility internationally through the leadership of President Obama and his administration to actually take domestic action to tackle the problem. But they should know that there is a great expectation that the U.S. works with others to go much further to work together with other major economies to drive emissions down at a much greater scale than there is right now. We're talking to you before the final gavel comes down on these talks, but at the end of the day, what do you think is the is likely to be the ultimate outcome here? I think there's two things that I hope come out of this meeting. The first is really just a broader sense of what's at stake to the public and leaders around the world, a signal to high-carbon industries that they just can't keep going the way that they've been going. We're in a crisis. I hope that somehow that message comes through to the broader public. The second is the very nuts and bolts decisions that need to come out of a meeting like this. So I hope there's a clear pathway to getting an ambitious and fair agreement in 2015, and that there's new initiatives that come forward that say, we're going to act now. Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking this time today. Thank you very much. If any new international climate agreement is ever worked out, it's expected to include RED, a deal to reduce emissions from forest degradation and destruction. At the moment, loss of tropical forests accounts for about a fifth of all global carbon dioxide emissions, more than all transportation. And to forge a deal, there will need to be measurement and verification of what's happening on the ground. Now negotiators and conservationists have a new tool, a collaboration that includes Google Earth, NASA, USGS, the University of Maryland, and the Woods Hole Research Center that has produced the first high-resolution map of global deforestation. Matt Henson of the University of Maryland was the lead author of a paper in science that presented the project. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much for having me. So this is an interactive map of forest cover around the world. How exactly does this work? Well, the interactive map is fantastic in that uh, it allows people to see the results of our study. The map is this great global overview where you can look at uh, the patterns and density of tree cover and then on top of that, look at the losses and gains over the 12-year period that we produced this map. And at the same time, you can take your roller button on your mouse and zoom down to a 30-meter square on the Earth and see what happened to that particular patch of ground. So we promote it as a globally consistent, locally relevant product, and you can go down and look at individual clearings. Now, where did you get the data to make these maps? These maps are based on a Landsat 7 satellite. Landsat is a long-running series of satellites uh, jointly operated by NASA and USGS. So starting 1999, this particular Landsat was systematically acquiring images everywhere. Once you have data everywhere, you can start thinking about mapping everywhere. And then the other thing that had to come together was uh, high-performance computing. Once they open up the archive, we're like, wow, okay, now how do we query and, and process hundreds of thousands of these images? And when we did it in the Google uh, Earth Engine highly parallelized environment, uh, what would have taken 15 years on one CPU took a few days. 
So what kind of data did we have before this was available? I'm thinking of places like uh, tropical forests in Africa, Congo, where government isn't able to collect this type of information. Right. Well, that's where it's most valuable. If you have a, a you know, the, the view from space on a place where there is no forced inventory being collected, these data are really valuable. So that's what we've always promoted. We've been working in the Congo Basin for 15 years, and we produce these types of data there, Indonesia and the like. But the only country that produces annual data like this is Brazil, and they release the data. Other countries use remote sensing, but they don't openly share the data. Thinking more of Indonesia, Indonesia has the capability. They don't share their data so well. It's very hard to tease out what's really happening in Indonesia. I looked at your map and zoomed in on Indonesia. It, wow, look how much is deforestation has increased there in the last 12 years. Yeah, Indonesia was, the in our study, the most annual increase, of about 1,000 square kilometers additional per year over the study period. That is the appropriation of natural forest for higher order use like palm oil or, or pulp. Deforestation on the rise in Indonesia, where else are you seeing it on the rise? In Malaysia, they are really converting their natural forests. And when you look at the middle of Borneo, you see this line where the logging roads of Malaysia go right up to the border. And so the intensity of forest uh, uh, logging and conversion in Malaysia is much higher than Indonesia. Um, if you look at the Chaco from Bolivia to Paraguay and and, uh, and Argentina, there's all loss, no gain. It is a deforestation dynamic, converting an almost an entire ecoregion in a period of 20 to 30 years to pasture lands and soybean production. Even small isolated events. We, we had one change pattern in China that we couldn't figure out. It looked like noise. We thought there was a problem with the data, but it was actually forest sliding off of a mountain range west of Chengdu in 2008. They had the Sichuan earthquake, and these forests literally slid off the mountaintops. And it's a very strange pattern, but it's a true pattern. So there's all kinds of things going on in, in these data. But a lot of it is the tropical, the rates of increase in the tropics is the most arresting, I would say. Looking at West Africa, there are a lot of, a lot of hot spots there, too. West Africa, the main hotspot is Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire, in the last 12 years, has gone through two civil wars. In this period of instability, there's been a large conversion of a lot of protected areas, national parks and forest reserves, so these big patches, these big polygons of forests. And it tells you how fragile national natural heritage can be. You might set aside 20% of your, of your land surface for protected areas, but if you go through a bad period, you can lose it. On the positive side, you can see a big forest block. It's the kind of iconic forest of West Africa. That's Thai National Park, UNESCO World Heritage Site, and that, that's intact. It's in Cote d'Ivoire. It survived all this instability. It's where they filmed the Disney movie Chimpanzee, and it looks great. Of course, the vast majority of trees are in the tropics, but I noticed that when I went to the southeastern United States, there was a lot of deforestation going on there. What's, what's happening in this country? Well, the southeast United States is a, is a, it's a tree farm, basically. The forestry land use is very intensive, and uh, trees are grown and harvested for pulp and timber uh, purposes. This is not deforestation, but it does have implications on habitat and other ecosystem services, whether it's carbon or water cycle. Um, when you look at the landscape, you try to find a intact habitat, you're going to look long and hard because it is a really, really intensively disturbed and used landscape. Why is it important to have a map like this? We can use it regionally to model hydrology, effects on uh, biodiversity. Uh, people use our maps in ways we can't imagine. Someone used a map of ours, uh, forest cover in Malawi, relating dietary diversity to health outcomes 
and people that had access to tree cover had more diverse diets and, and, and better standards in terms of health. So we were really excited that uh, when we get these data out, people use it at the global scale, they use it at a local scale, they'll use it for predictable science applications and some that we haven't even anticipated. Matt Henson is a professor of geographical science at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Coming up, getting smart with lights to save money, lots of energy, and learn more about ourselves. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And now, another in our series Power Shift, about the transition to low-carbon energy in the Bay State. The other day, we headed down into what Boston calls the Innovation District, to visit a company called Digital Lumens. We went to see a better light bulb. But the first thing we see as we meet CEO Tom Pinsons is a rack full of items invented more than a century ago, bicycles. Uh, there's a lot of uh, bicyclists, probably about half the company bikes here every day, and so we have a full, what, 25, 30 bike uh, parking lot on the wall. So your place here kind of looks like a, a warehouse. Maybe once upon a time it was or something like that. We're in the old wharf district of Boston. This is where all the, the goods came and went. Uh, the innovation district is the old seaport. And so we're in an open space. We have about 15-foot ceilings. You can see the beams and exposed uh, floor from the level above us. Just as the bicycle is a cheap and appropriate technology to save time in this era of congested streets, Digital Lumens had an idea to marry cheap, appropriate technology to the efficient LED light bulb and save up to 90% of energy and costs. The idea was to make every light in the world intelligent and put little computers uh, into every single light. These digital devices figure out just when and where lighting is needed. Each of these lights has a little computer in it, and the computers talk to each other, and they talk to a main computer that will help them work in concert with what's going on in the building and what's going on in the environment. Tom points to an overhead array of LED lights that have built-in computer chips, light sensors, and networking devices. And uh, this is one of the areas where we try out our lights. You'll see these are our new generation lights we just uh, released um, days ago. And then um, over there are the ones we've been shipping for three or four years. At first glance, the lights don't look different from other LED fixtures. I asked engineer Steve Kondo just how big is the computer on these lights. It's pretty small. It'll definitely fit in the palm of your hand. Basically this size here, it's about, it's actually the size of a post-it note. And, um, you know, this houses a considerable amount of intelligence where you can detect people. So it's an occupancy detector. You can see how much light is actually on the floor at the time. It's not just what light are you delivering, it's how much light is coming in from other sources, whether it's skylights, windows, highly reflective surfaces. So you're looking at sort of the total picture. So if it's bright outside, the lights dim. And if it clouds up, the lights compensate. The computers integrate other factors such as foot traffic. So for example, if you're walking in a huge warehouse, instead of lighting up the whole area, the system illuminates the place you're in. And because it's smart, it also lights the section you're headed for, so you don't have to wait in the dark until a sensor notices you're there. Brian Schemmel saw the potential of marrying efficient LED lights to tiny computers and founded the company in 2008 with a team of engineers and one core concept. 
Well, we realized that you know there are a lot of trends uh, working in our favor to making every light intelligent. The costs of adding a, a microcontroller to a product are, are plummeting. The fact that we all have smartphones in our pockets means that the little chunks of hardware that those systems use are available for a bunch of other applications. At the same time, it's never been cheaper to make software run out in the cloud. You know, we, can, we can leverage a bunch of different trends, and we're sort of at the right point in time to make this work. And why do this? We're making every light intelligent for two reasons. One, it drives tremendous energy efficiency. We say radical energy efficiency, much more than just switching to LED light sources. When you make the lights smart, you get a lot more energy savings. The second is we're building a platform for distributed building intelligence. Lights are a perfect Trojan horse for instrumenting the built environment. Parking garages that can track people moving through them for safety reasons, for billing reasons. Uh, retail stores that can anonymously monitor traffic flow inside them to tell advertisers how long people are pausing in front of end caps to see product information. There's really a lot of themes that get pulled together by lighting because it is so pervasive. Associated Wholesale Grocers of New England, based in Pembroke, New Hampshire, was one of the first customers of Digital Lumens. Associated serves over 600 independent food retailers with one of America's largest purchasing and distribution centers. We called up Bruce Coutois, the facilities manager, to see how the lighting system has worked for him. We first did a section in our freezer about a year ago, and that's when we first were introduced to the project. And after that, it was like a no-brainer. The savings have been tremendous, tremendous. We saved about... 1.6 million kilowatt hours in just electricity alone, it comes down to about $200,000 a year in our electric bill. With that and a rebate that we got from uh, New Hampshire, the uh, payback on this became a little over a year. There are different LED lights on the market, but the digital luminance product is uh, a little bit advanced compared to some of the LED lighting. And Coutoir outlined some other benefits. It tells you where there's motion all the time and all of a sudden you're saying, well, why are people always going to this part of the building at the beginning of the shift for a certain thing? Found out it's a common product that everybody kind of orders. We move that up to the front of the warehouse so there's less travel time. Less travel time equates to more dollars, and light levels are so much brighter. Work production boosted because people could see better. It gives the person or company that installs this the creativity, I guess, of fine-tuning the lighting to how their needs are. Still, with new technology involving computers, there can be glitches. Back at the Digital Lumens headquarters in Boston, product manager Tom Anderson said there is a steep learning curve and customers can have problems. Usually it's uh, maintenance of our system. Our system has a lot of IT components. And so maintaining the communication between all of our uh, lights and system can present some issues. So. We work with them to just uh, make sure that we can resolve those issues remotely by connecting to their system and um, troubleshooting it from here. All in all, the company has had success after success. Again, engineer Steve Kondo. I think the best one that I like was when we're releasing the second generation product. We did a demo installation in Chicago at a warehouse. We put them up there, everything went great. The utility provider, once they installed our fixtures, didn't quite believe there was their meter. They actually sent someone out to go check the meter and make sure it was actually functioning um, because <laughs> the amount of power that we were starting to save them. And then they started started monitoring and make sure that they weren't pulling a fast one over them. That's like the best testimony. And like, I think it's my favorite because it's, it's entirely doable. People don't believe you, but it happens.
And because it happens, Digital Lumens has taken its better light bulb all the way to the bank. They started with five employees, and now they are up to 100. And CEO Tom Pinsons and his team have even bigger ideas. As I said earlier, we're trying to make every single light intelligent. So we're going to start with industrial lights, go to office lights, but pretty soon you'll see intelligent lights in your home. We talked about what will that light know. Well, it may know a lot about you. So for instance, if you are one of those people who is a quantified self, let's say you have a heart rate monitor and you jog and, and, and you take your weight measurement every day, it may know that you are feeling particularly bad today. It may turn out that you're sick. And so it can actually change the color of the light based on how you're feeling. Wait a second, this sounds more like a robot than a light. Well, I think that many of the things, uh, robots is a pretty interesting analogy. Actually, most of our guys actually came out of Carnegie Mellon's robot labs. Call them lights or robots. Digital Lumen CEO Tom Pinsons doesn't care, just as long as people give them a try. Smart lights, he says, are here to stay. And along with all the other innovations in energy conservation, they are building new businesses and adding up to lots of savings in emissions and dollars. Lights that think for you and anticipate your every move aren't the only clever inventions that might help with the problem of climate change. James West is senior producer for the online news collaboration Climate Desk. Taking a break from work one day, James started random internet searches and wound up at the U.S. Patent Office website. So call me a nerd or just call me bored, but actually I got into this black hole of internet trolling through patents, looking at the ways in which your fellow citizens have been inventing climate solutions, adaptation, mitigation solutions in their backyards. And I, and I found some very interesting things indeed. So let's talk about a couple of them. Uh, what about the patent for a better de-icer for car windows? How would that work? Well, look, anybody that has been in cold climates knows how annoying it is when you're tired, caffeine is belly rushing through your blood, and you have to de-ice and defog your car in the morning. So this guy called Jerry Lansinger, uh, he now lives in Washington State, this guy has come up with a way to de-ice a windshield in less than a minute. How would this work? This is a specially designed heat exchanger installed in the engine, which rapidly converts the existent heat in the engine into hot water. And then it's sprayed out into nozzles onto the windshield itself. And uh, the inventor, Jerry Lansinger, says that he's recorded times of 45 seconds for a complete de-icing of your windshield. So that's a lot less than the average 15 to 20 minutes. And it'll get you on the road a lot earlier in the mornings and also be better for the environment. Now, there's another patent you looked at, which is uh, fake sea ice. How would this work? Well, this one was really interesting. This guy uh, called Philip Langhorst from St. Louis has invented this ice substrate that he envisages someday to be dropped on the surface of oceans or lakes to reflect sunlight back into space. So this is a kind of geo-hacking or geo-engineering measure. And uh, these things are going to be giant sheets of what he calls artificial 
ice. Now, underneath them, he also plans to sow nutrients so that uh, sea life can grow on the bottom of these things that may then be able to be harvested for biofuels. Well, what concerns were expressed in the patent about the possible side effects of covering the surface of the ocean with this fake ice? Philip was like, well, look, we're talking about the, the deep future here where everything else has failed. We've failed to come to any kind of international agreement on this, and we need to do something drastic. He, he basically said, pick your poison. Either we get very warm and we can't deal with it, or we have to invest in something like this. So he was saying the possible side effects are, you know, putting this stuff onto a very lively ocean and uh, killing stuff that's already there. And the cost, obviously, of developing this stuff at such a scale that we overlay the oceans in the Western Pacific with uh, fake ice structures is obviously going to be prohibitive. And, and of course, the companies that he's approached have already sort of balked at this idea and said, um, I'm not sure, Philip, whether this is going to be a viable commercial option. Now, there's another idea that kind of looks cool. This is a collapsible, portable source of renewable energy there's a, a diagram with the article that shows a car hooked up directly to a windmill. What's the idea here? Yeah, so this is the idea that uh, if, you know, and I'm particularly thinking in kind of emergency situations, you know, post-Sandy uh, here in New York, there was a desperate need to get portable power into places where the grid had failed. There's an inventor in Crossville, Tennessee, called Lynn Miller, who's come up with this idea of a portable power station. This is something that you can put on the back of a trailer and literally unfold onto a flat surface by the side of the road or in a parking lot. And the idea is there's a roof with an array of solar panels and this uh, wind turbine that can be thrown up into the sky at a moment's notice and it's plug and play. This thing essentially unloads and generates power immediately. So James, you actually talked to the people that wrote these patents, right? I did. It was actually great connecting with these inventors, you know, because they're so passionate about the things that they have invented, uh, sometimes for many, many years. Uh, you know, Jerry Lansinger in Washington State, he'd been tinkering for 20 years in his garage to produce this new windshield rapid defrosting system. And so you really get a sense of people's passion about this, which, which was really exciting. I understand, though, that there was one more patent writer that you couldn't get through to. That's Nike. Tell me about their new idea. Okay, yes. So this is the one inventor that I wasn't allowed to get through to. Um, this was the carbon-sucking golf ball that the golf team at Nike has actually invented and patented through the U.S. Patent Office. Um, wait, wait a second. Carbon-sucking golf ball? Carbon-sucking golf balls. This is an actual patented invention by Nike, if you can believe it. You can't make this stuff up. Well, how exactly would this thing work? You know, I have to say I was pretty impressed by the science of this. It's a pretty technical whiz-bang type of thing. The outside of the, the golf ball deforms somewhat, this layer, and then that sets up a chain reaction so that as it's whizzing through the air, it's sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. And 
at the end of 18 holes, you're able to look at this ball and see how much, through some kind of visual indicator on the side of the ball, how much carbon you've been able to suck out of the atmosphere along the golf course. And the more swings, the more carbon that you're going to suck out of the atmosphere. So that would make me a major like climate action hero at that point. But the patent does say that these golf balls, at best, will only ever deal with the amount of carbon that's required to produce them. I wouldn't really bank on, uh, you know, this replacing any kind of agreement being hammered out right now in Warsaw, for example, or future UN climate agreements. James West is the senior producer for Climate Desk. Thanks so much, James. Anytime. Coming up, an active volcano is discovered hidden under a mile of ice. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For years, scientists have been concerned that a warmer Earth might lead to the melting and sudden collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which could add as much as 10 feet to world sea levels. Now scientists at Washington University in St. Louis have discovered a surprising new threat lurking beneath the West Antarctic ice sheet, an active volcano. Joining us to discuss the finding is Douglas Weens, professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So imagine that, a volcano beneath Antarctica, huh? Well, we've known there's volcanoes around Antarctica, but what's kind of unique about this one is it's below about a mile of ice. Where is it exactly? There's a remote part of Western Antarctica called Marie Birdland. It's maybe about 400 miles from the coastline. So where it is in West Antarctica, this is under the West Antarctic ice sheet? Yes. So when's the last time you think this volcano blew? We have no way of knowing. So in 2010, uh, we went out and put seismographs in this area. And as soon as we put the seismographs down, they were recording these small earthquakes that are related to the movement of magma beneath the ice sheet. So we don't really know when the activity started. We think this activity does not mean there's an eruption going on now, but there could have been an eruption you know, almost any time in the past, and we wouldn't know. So um, how many volcanoes are down there, do you think? Well, that's a really good question. I think there's a lot of undiscovered, quite a number of undiscovered volcanoes across West Antarctica. There's a few of the big ones that stick out. So like this... Newly discovered volcano is about 30 or 40 miles from Mount Sidley, which is this spectacular volcano that sticks out of the ice sheet and was first discovered by Robert Byrd when he flew across Antarctica in the 1930s. But that volcano hasn't erupted for three million years, so 
We had no idea whether volcanoes in this area were currently active. So what are the chances that the thing underneath the ice erupts? Well, we would think it'd be pretty good. If you have this kind of volcanic earthquakes, they're only found beneath active volcanoes, such as in Cascadia, you know, Pacific Northwest, or Alaska, or Japan, uh, or Hawaii. Those are all places where active volcanoes have had this kind of earthquakes uh, beneath it. So we think that there's a pretty good chance that at some point in the future, this volcano will erupt. And the question is, of course, how soon? How soon and, and uh, how large of an eruption? And we really don't know much about what happens when a volcano erupts under this much ice. I mean, there's a lot of study of volcanoes in Iceland, for example, that erupt beneath uh, a few hundred feet of ice. But, you know, beneath a mile of ice is something we haven't really considered very much. What happens in Iceland? Well, in Iceland, they have something uh, called a yokelup. I don't know if I pronounced it exactly right, but basically a lot of water builds up uh, underneath the ice as the volcano heats up. And then it all of a sudden rushes out uh, towards the ocean in kind of a catastrophic flood. Something somewhat similar may happen in Antarctica, but here the ocean is about 500 miles away, so you know the water has to go a long way. What are the odds that an eruption could melt through the ice sheet? Well, we did a little calculation for our paper uh, for Amanda Lowe, that's my uh, graduate student, for her paper in Nature Geosciences. And uh, her calculation suggested that if we had a really, really large eruption, like some of the most famous uh, large eruptions in history, like Krakatoa or Mount Tambora, that such an eruption would melt through the ice sheet and uh, vent to the atmosphere. But that a small sort of you know, garden variety eruption would not uh, and would essentially build up a large amount of melted water beneath the ice. West Antarctic ice sheet is kind of like a boat run aground. What are the odds that this volcano could help push portions of that ice sheet into the ocean? Well, we don't think this volcano would catastrophically melt the West Antarctic ice sheet. I think that's probably out of the picture. An eruption like this so could perturb the ice sheet and maybe for a period of years cause increased flow of the ice sheet towards the oceans. And so that would maybe increase the rate of melting for a while. I wouldn't encourage any sort of doomsday scenarios, though, with the a volcano. There is a larger question, I think, in West Antarctica, which is what is the amount of heat coming into the bottom of the ice sheet from the Earth, and how does that affect the ice sheet and its behavior? Okay, so you asked the question, and what do you think the answers might be? Well, there is some evidence recently that the heat flow into the bottom of the ice sheet is larger than what we thought. So there was a, an ice core, the Western Arctic um, ice sheet, ice drilling project at a place called Wace uh, in Western Antarctica, and it has found a higher level of heat flow than anybody thought. So there are indications like this volcano, like this high heat flow measurement, that the heat flow is higher in Western Antarctica than we previously thought. And that means that the water will be going back to the ocean, which would, of course, raise sea level if that ultimately happens. Yes, because if the, if the ice moves faster from the middle of Antarctica to the edges, it doesn't melt in the middle. I mean, you know, we're there on the hottest day of the year, and it's way below freezing. The ice only melts at the edges, and so the faster that the ice moves from the center to the edges, 
the faster the ice is going to melt. And uh, so that's what we're really worried about, how, you know, how fast is that ice moving from the center to the edge, and you know, how is that going to change in the future. Douglas Weens is a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. And now we turn to some stories from beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra, who publishes the Daily Climate and Environmental Health News. He and his team find eclectic stories of environmental change from all around the planet in their daily search of the web, everything from the unusual to little-noticed topics that bear watching as they emerge over time. Peter Dykstra is on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. So this week, uh, you've got some things for us, including a story about a journalist and a general, huh? Well, that's right. We picked up a piece uh, from the New Orleans Times-Picayune. John Barry's a famous, accomplished historian and author. He wrote a great book about the Mississippi River floods back in 1927, kind of the pre-Katrina for Louisiana. He's teamed up with General Russell Honoré. He was a guy they called a John Wayne dude. He was the hero of Katrina, the guy that came in and restored order in New Orleans. Remember him? Oh, yeah. How could you forget him? Well, the general is putting together what he calls the Green Army for Louisiana. They're looking to set up some legislative goals to help save the Louisiana coastline. There have been huge problems along the coast with uh, erosion. The oil and gas industry and all the pipelines and channels and canals that are one of the culprits. And General Honoré and John Barry, the author, are among many people who feel that the state government in Louisiana is a little too cozy with the oil and gas industry. They're going to focus on that in coming years. So we might get to see how mighty the pen and the sword are when they're together, huh? I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. Hey, Peter, now what about this uh, toxic mystery that you think could be good news? It might be good news. It might just be a mystery. It's going to take some time to figure it out. But we uh, at EHN picked up a story from the Daily Breeze newspaper in Torrance, California. Out there in Torrance, which is south of L.A., there was a chemical factory, the Montrose Chemical Company. They manufactured uh, the DDT pesticide until it was outlawed. They also had a huge offshore toxic waste dump, and there were about a thousand tons believed to be out in the Pacific, south of LA. Uh, DDT and PCBs, another carcinogen that was also outlawed. They stay highly toxic for decades. They're constantly measured for contamination. Uh, scientists were finding really high contamination levels till about four years ago, and in the last four years, they've dropped dramatically. And the reason for this? No idea yet. There are a lot of possibilities. Uh, those chemicals, which are very persistent, they stay in the environment for a long time, maybe breaking down faster than we thought. They might have been pushed somewhere else along the seabed. They might be buried in sediment. It might be a good news story, but for now, it's just a mystery. Hey, maybe it's some saltwater-loving microbes that like to eat DDT and PCBs, huh? Could be. I think the scientists have that one on the list, but it may take a few more years to sort it out and have an answer. Hey, Peter, before you go, um, give us another look back in history, would you please? Ten years ago this month, we saw the last flight of the Concorde, the supersonic airliner, the SST. It could take you from London to New York in three and a half hours. It launched in the 70s, and the Concorde was a miracle, but it also had a lot of environmental baggage that it was carrying. What were the issues with it back then? Well, for starters, it was extremely loud, and that upset a lot of people who lived near JFK Airport in New York and Heathrow in London. It also burned a huge amount of fuel. 
It was alleged at the time that uh, the Concorde would destroy the ozone layer, that it would cause massive bird kills from uh, the sonic boom. And those last two things never happened. We also found better ways to destroy the ozone layer. It also attracted celebrity opponents and supporters. Uh, Sir Alec Guinness opposed the Concorde uh, landing in Heathrow. And on this side of the ocean, one of the big supporters was Henry Kissinger. The Secretary of State versus the Jedi Master, huh? Yeah, that would have been one lightsaber fight to watch. Uh, the Concorde finally got the okay to fly into the U.S. in 1977, which, of course, is also the year that the first Star Wars movie came out. Uh, it was operated not by a U.S. airline, but by British Airways and Air France. Uh, by all measures, it was profitable until about the year 2000, and then disaster hit. There was a fiery crash of a Concorde in Paris, no survivors. They grounded the plane for a year to try and figure out safety issues. It got up in the air briefly, but by the year 2003, the airlines gave up on it due to rising fuel costs and declining interests. And of course, since then, we've also uh, learned a lot more about what a big contributor that even standard conventional airliners are to greenhouse gas emissions. Gee, I never got to fly in the SST, and I guess it's unlikely I ever will, huh? No, they're still in museums, but they're not making any more. They're not out there. And even back 10 and 20 years ago, uh, the uh, fare for an SST was above our pay grade. Oh, yeah, that doesn't work in public radio, does it? Peter Dykstra is publisher of the Daily Climate and Environmental Health News. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Steve. Traditionally, turkey takes center stage at Thanksgiving dinner, but many people who eat no meat can find themselves just left with the sides, unless they know someone like Dee Dee Emmons. She's a well-known chef in Massachusetts and author of numerous cookbooks, including Vegetarian Planet. Each year, she hosts a Thanksgiving spread for vegans who steer clear not only of meat, but also eggs and dairy. A few years ago, Emmons invited us into her kitchen while she prepared the dish that will replace Tom Turkey on her Thanksgiving table. When people know they're going to a vegan Thanksgiving dinner, you know, they know they're not going to be getting that, that big bird. But I think that what they do want is something that is similar, that has the same kind of chew value. Turkey, you know, or like any meat, it's, um, it's much harder to chew than a vegetable. And, and there's something really kind of satisfying, probably, you know, it goes back to our, our hunting days. For this year's vegan Thanksgiving, we're going to have a roasted seitan, which is going to be, you know, the bird. Seitan is wheat gluten, and more than tofu and more than tempeh, really has great chew. And it also has good flavor. It's got much better flavor than tofu. It comes in this box, and I'm throwing the wheat gluten into a bowl. And it's pretty simple. Even a six-year-old could do it. You're just adding water. And all of a sudden, it starts to look a little brainy. It starts to kind of, it's just strange. It's, it doesn't look like your regular average dough. So right now, while the seitan is resting, I'm making its braising liquid. It's gonna have to braise in a liquid. It's gonna have to cook for an hour. Turkey already has a lot of flavor, but seitan needs a little help. I've added an onion, I've added a bunch of garlic, I've added fresh tarragon, 
a lot of Worcestershire sauce. I'm gonna add about a quart of water and um, a good amount of salt and pepper. Yeah, throw in a little more tarragon because it's a special occasion. It only comes around once a year. We're gonna make a portobello Madeira gravy. And what I've done is I've taken portobello mushrooms and I've thrown them into a food processor and I've just kind of obliterated them. They're just very finely ground. We've got the braising liquid from the seitan and that is a stock. And it's a delicious stock with the tarragon and the fennel seed. And so we're going to borrow some of that and we're gonna make the gravy out of that. It's time uh, for the seitan to uh, hopefully to be done. And the Worcestershire has given it a really lovely golden brown color. So we're just gonna put the seitan down like we would the way that dad would put the, uh, the turkey breast down on somebody's plate. And then we've got our gravy and we're going to drizzle it right over the seitan. Mmm. It's there. It's everything I wanted it to be. Eco-chef Dee Dee Emmons. Steve Gregory produced our audio postcard. And to gobble up a recipe of Dee Dee's roasted seitan and other vegan Thanksgiving delights, head over to our website at loe.org. Going vegan forces you to, to get into creativity, and that, for me, is something that's a lot more fun than just eating what I've been eating every single year. We leave you this week with a murder. A murder of crows, that is. The collective noun for these corvids dates back centuries. These noisy birds are complaining in a woodland on a blustery winter evening. Five carrion crows head to roost at dusk in Woodchester Park in Gloucestershire, England. Richard Margotius recorded this murder for the British Library National Sound Archive CD, Wild Britain. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catherine Rodway, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms. www.redtomato.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.